a ratio marketing podcast. I see customer success roles. I see sales. I see entrepreneurs. And and it's amazing, right? They have amazing ideas. But will it fit within the workflow of the many different healthcare providers that you're trying to affect? So you have you have so many variances in that space. Do you really understand the workflow or even the thought flow of the clinicians that would reduce burden for them that would get to meaningful adoption of a, of a technology solution? Have you ever wished you had a healthcare provider on speed dial? Someone you could call to validate your product market fit. Someone to listen and help you see your solution differently. Welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix, a podcast to help you see your market clearly. We dive deep into the challenges faced by healthcare organization leaders that technology has the chance to help them solve. It's all about gaining the kind of understanding you need to effectively connect with your market. Join us as we explore the Healthcare Market Matrix. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix. I'm your host, John Farkas, CEO of Ratio. And today I am excited. We have the honor of talking with the Dr. Kelly Aldrich, um, who is a highly accomplished and board certified informatics nurse specialist. And she comes to us with over 35 years of experience in the clinical, academic, and leadership roles. Uh, just a tremendous HIT strategist slash innovator slash industry thought leader who has consistently demonstrated a strong commitment to leveraging advanced technology to, bottom line, make nurses' lives better and thus improve the outcomes of the people that nurses care for. Um, Kelly is presently the Director of Innovation and Associate Professor of Nursing Informatics and at the as a part of the faculty at the Vanderbilt University School of Nursing. And we're going to get into some of her long and uh, illustrious career history here in a little bit. But I'll just say, and, you know, I got to know Kelly in the context of, uh, I don't even know how to, cons- how to describe what we were involved in, Kelly, but a, a consortium of people really interested in, the, uh, in exploring interoperability and what that means in the context of, of healthcare. And uh, Kelly was involved for a long time and, and is currently in, at the Center for Medical Interoperability. Um, and... What I appreciated about Kelly in her and uh, getting to know her in that context was her very direct, no nonsense, real world perspective of what has to happen in healthcare in order to make things make sense. And she uh, was very, has been very skilled in bringing those ideas forward. It's why I see her uh, valued as a, as a thought leader in this field. And why I'm excited that she is part of uh, Ratio's advisory board and helping to bring perspective to health tech companies that are wanting to make a difference in, in this world. So, Kelly, welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I look forward to our discussion and, of course, lots of follow-up discussion uh, on this topic. It's a great topic of 
really understanding the marketplace and healthcare technology solutions and how best to be successful. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, glad you're here. I would love for you to tell us a little bit of your backdrop. Um, (laughs) How did you get to where you are? And I know we could spend the whole episode uh, just uh, recounting the steps that it took you to get the perspective and the backdrop that you have, but give us the flyby um, yeah. t- from from where you started as a bedside nurse to what has become a, quite a platform that you've established in Thank your you. role. Yeah, well, I kind of feel like I need to have a scrolling timeline with year <laughs> markers, you know, because uh, I, I've been very fortunate and very blessed to be able to serve patients um, I started when I was 16 as a as a uh, nursing assistant. Wow. So I go way back, um, and and always loved what I have done and been excited by new opportunities in the healthcare profession. But um, I started in Chicago as a open heart recovery liver transplant nurse at Rush University, and um, you know I loved working at the bedside, always being challenged, but. A group of us decided to go um, leave Chicago for the winter and move to Hawaii. So I think that's actually what started um, my career in understanding the variances and the process changes that are just throughout healthcare that actually serve as um, pain points and failure points. Uh, because no one really does anything the same, which has a huge impact on technology and patient safety, quite frankly. So we went to we went to Hawaii, and I became a neurotrauma ICU nurse. Um, spent some time there. I think I was a traveling nurse before it was really cool um, back in the early nineties. But it's pretty um, cool to, going going to Hawaii. I mean, <laughs> you, you made that was a cool strategic decision going <laughs> from Chicago to Hawaii. Let's face right. it for the winter, mind you. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you know, that was very strategic. <laughs> uh, went to UCLA for a while, and then down at the military hospital in San Diego, I served as a CBICU nurse. Um, moved on. Um, away from traveling nurse and, and moved to Florida for a while. And that's really where I dug into a community hospital uh, away from teaching facilities. And, and again, was able to really create a foundation in the variances of care delivery and the different models of care and operations efficiency. Um, I was a, a bedside nurse there for some time, went back and did some graduate work, Um, I received about uh, three graduate degrees in nursing um, and then on to get my doctorate. But I was uh, the ER director for some time, which was fascinating. I worked with the state and the local uh, authorities around hurricane preparedness. And this, again, was what kind of broadened my perspective of things that impact operations and systems of care um, just outside of the walls of the hospital. Um, I was uh, asked to be the chief nursing officer there. I was the chief nursing officer for some time um, while I was in an informatics program and just just wanted to return to the operations efficiency by using data. And I will tell you, um, the, the experiences of having been 
um, hit by a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Charlie. It was a massive hurricane. It shut down our entire hospital and operations. And I remember my CV surgeon coming through the door when we had no electricity. And he said, all my medical records are blowing down the street right now. (laughs) And he said, Kelly, that's why you're going into informatics and not at the bedside, because I got a lot of slack from people leaving the nurse practitioner program in CV to do informatics. I got a lot of a lot of challenges from people. So um, grew into that role, um, wanted to do more informatics. And so I moved into uh, Nashville and eventually over time under Dr. Uh, Jonathan Perlin became the chief nursing informatics officer at HCA. So I was the inaugural CNIO there. I was invited into that role, I guess, because of the impact that I was having through our many hospitals in innovation. It was not the word at the time. It was just really taking care of the nurses and the patients with technology. Uh, And so I was in that role for just a little less than 10 years moved on to the Center for Medical Interoperability, where my true passion lied, as you had said, John, around interoperability and what were we doing with technology to serve reducing burden on the care team and the patient coordination of care. That is beyond huge. And anyone who's impacting in that area has got to know what an amazing job that they're doing in impacting lives. And and I'm very passionate about that. Um, I still, to this day, do keynotes in in interoperability and working with various groups around this. Um, I'm currently doing a lot of consulting for various companies, international companies around informatics, healthcare informatics, workflow impact, safety, reducing burden, and um, and then I'm at Vanderbilt. I've been at Vanderbilt teaching for about for over ten years, but but recently, about two years ago, took their director of innovation role, and been working with a lot of immersive virtual reality experiences, both in mindfulness. Um, I created a Mind Lab. It's called Mindful Immersive Nursing Demonstration. So Mind Lab, and with that, we're also experimenting on immersive um, simulations for empathy training for new nurses coming into the field, so that they have experiences before they actually interact with patients. And so, um, so yeah, that's well, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I tried, but yeah, that's where that's where I'm at. That's a little bit of my background. Um, I sit on a, um, several national uh, advisory councils, um, including interoperability standards with the ONC. I've I've served about five or six terms there. Um, I sit on a cybersecurity council that I have done for many years. I'm fascinated with the impacts of clinicians and actually the burden that cybersecurity puts on clinicians. Um, and the negotiating factors that we have to have there. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of me. And I run a, a pottery business. <laughs> because something has to help you stay sane, right? <laughs> um, I love my that, pottery. <laughs> and, and it's a great mindful, uh, yeah. mindful exercise yeah. as every potter has uh, that I know has um, has communicated. That's, you didn't uh, know that's that, awesome. did you, John? <laughs> 
I didn't know that that was part of your backdrop, but that's, I, I love that that's part of who you are and it makes it, I can see the thread there. Um, so what, what, as you were talking, what came really clear to me was <laughs> that you were, you were caring for patients at the time when a lot of founders of health tech companies were born in the hospitals that you may have been serving in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you've seen, yeah. and, and in a, at a point that clearly predated electronic medical records and, and where, where records were able to literally be blowing down the street in a heavy wind. Right. Um, and so you have seen a remarkable move in this realm. I mean, you were there for the birth of healthcare informatics. Um, and, and so your perspective on this, I've got to think has, has been, uh, pretty mind blowing. I, I can't imagine going from where you started to where you are now in in this realm. My, my question is, um, knowing, knowing what you've experienced and what you've seen going from from the conventional paper charts and what you experienced as a nurse on the floor in the days prior to technology. Mm -hmm. My, uh, you know, what, what I know is everything's gotten in many ways more complicated for nurses. I mean, especially with what the, what insurance is requiring from reporting and coding and all the different things that need to happen in a nurse's life to help the, to, to ensure that they're checking all the boxes that they need to check in today's uh, compliance and regulatory environment. And what, what would you have to say to uh, a leader of a, of a health tech company who's trying to interject a new piece of technology onto the floor? Um, you know, what would you, what would be the flag you would want to wave in front of them to make sure that they're carrying as a, uh, in their forefront, uh, what yeah. would you want to say to them? To, to me, that's an easy one. Um, it, it really is about having the clinicians that you're hoping will use your technology be involved in the design of the technology. That, that's a real easy one to me. And that's one that is so often missed. And as a matter of fact, yesterday I was on a call with an old friend who's a, who's a startup guy. And he was like, hey, could you talk with this company They've developed this technology for nurses, but they don't have a nurse on their team. <laughs> so I think that it's really in it. Step one, it, get nurse on team. <laughs> so that's, that's really, you know, that's a very uh, serious miss. I see customer success roles. I see sales. I see entrepreneurs. And, and it's amazing, right? They have amazing ideas. but. Will it fit within the workflow of the many different healthcare providers that you're trying to affect? So you have you have so many variances in that space. Do you really understand the workflow or even the thought flow of the clinicians that would reduce burden for them that would get to meaningful adoption of a of a technology solution? Or is it something that is being introduced into the environment that, quite frankly, that will cause a workaround to do something within this product and, and therefore create more burden for the team. Not only does it create burden, but it creates a non-reliable 
non-repeatable, non-scalable solution, and that will fail. Yep. It's, it's definitely a, a critical component that I see. And, and it's become, for me, I know, one of the questions that I ask when we're looking at client potentials, right? Because I've recognized that that, that orientation, that focus is so critical that if you don't have it, that your opportunity at getting product market fit, at your opportunity at getting credibility is really compromised because everybody right now that has a, a solution that touches clinicians, they're all, I mean, the demands are extremely high because we're dealing with one of the most taxed parts of the health system and introducing any complicating factor is a non-starter. You know, it has to, it has to smooth the path. It can't add friction. There's no room for friction and, and anything that looks like friction can't, can't move forward. So it yeah, seems, it I seems recall, like a non. Well, that would be my number one thing. I, I recall saying when I was working at HCA, I, I really had the opportunity. Dr. Perlin was very um, supportive, who is now the by the way, he's now the CEO of the Joint Commission. So um, he served as the undersecretary um, to the VA before he joined HCA. So he's a very, very visionary, impactful uh, leader, chief medical officer, um, and now CEO again of the Joint Commission. But he always, he he never got in my way. He always encouraged me to um, kind of create a proposal and invited nurses to the table, always so respectful. But the point being is he when I would come up with an idea, so I created something called Vitals Now um, back in 2008. And it was at the time my doctoral project. And and so what I did was I actually um, worked with a company, but worked with the nurses at the bedside to find out all the caveats of all the problems that they may have in implementing this tool that automated vital signs into the medical record. So created all the requirements and standards. That's now an industry standard across, that's international standard. And I called it vitals now kind of as a joke, just because it was like, hey, vitals now. We Vitals are vital for a reason. And where I'm going with this is sometimes the best ideas are the most simple ideas that if you understood workflow or if you understand some of the burden challenges, you would know that it's just these simple tweaks or these simple automations that need to occur that will really in, increase the value of that product delivery. It's, it could just be one thing. And, and so when I would be asked to come into meetings with various people that would come into HCA, I would always say, well, who's the nurse in the room? Is there a nurse with them? And I guess it was because I was so, I, it, it, it got to be a lot <laughs> telling people what their products could do for nurses or physicians or pharmacists, any of our healthcare providers that really are a team. We look at ourselves as teams. It's the other people that separate us. So, you know, it's, it's really kind of interesting. And, yeah. and I would, I would actually get to the point where, I was not accepting meetings where they didn't have a clinician on the team. And that wow. was, gosh, that was over 10 years ago, right? That was, that was a lot. That was a minute ago because it was that important to understanding product development. And my investment team 
would would text me during meetings and say, stop talking. You're costing us millions of dollars. <laughs> and, and at first I was offended by that because I would just go, I'm just asking simple, simple questions that are not here that I need to know. And, and, and I would get the text message, stop talking. Right? <laughs> so, so it got to be like this, this crazy loop of, well, if wow. I can't ask questions, how can I know what this product does? So that's why I always would say, could you please bring a nurse? Um, and, and, and the reason why I say a nurse is I'm a huge nurse advocate as a nurse. I, I love my physician counterparts, many, many friends of mine. But it's the nurses who understand and run the hospitals and they understand the operations. And quite frankly, they don't get the respect that they need in understanding the impact that their roles in understanding care coordination. So that's why I always focus on the nurses. Yeah, if there's an area that I have grown in my understanding and respect in the last several years is I've got to know what it takes to make healthcare happen. It's the the critical nature of nurses in operations you know it's it's it is the conduit between clinical and operations they're the ones that are running interference and doing the primary uh the primary interface and most consistent interface with the systems that have to make things run right and and so you know certainly physicians do and i'm not i'm not discounting that they are all i mean Every physician I know talks about all the time and effort they're spending in system, you know, in uh, systems and documentation. And that's a huge, huge burden. But when you take the next step down into operations, nurses are tighter in that integration and it's got to work for them. I mean, it just, you know, when I, when I hear statistics like 30% or 33% or something like that of a nurse's time is spent on the keyboard, um, you know, that's terrifying to me. It shouldn't be that way. And it, and it needs to be less of that, especially as nurses continue to get uh, more and more burdened and there's fewer and fewer per patient. Um, we have to find ways to free them up to be focused in, in that realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, if I can add to that, I think that that's a great observation and boy, I'm on board with that. Uh, it's when I said before, it's mostly the simple things. It's not these sexy innovation ideas. It's it's really the simple things to optimize what's going on. I had a visit the other day from um, a perioperative director who runs about 55 ORs. And she's like, can you just come with me and I'll walk you around and show you the opportunities? How about just putting a stoplight in the OR room that indicates um, that we've done our timeouts or or flash up a sign that shows who's in the room because they're wearing these masks and they have all this garb on and you can't see, you don't know who your team is, right? And so she was just coming up with all these simple ideas and I'm just shaking my head going, when are the nurses going to be heard? And it seems as though, here's another caution, it seems as though if you sell your idea to the CFO that somehow you think you have it in. And that's not necessarily true. You may have gotten a contract, but your system may fail because you didn't include the nurses in what did they actually need. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, because I know one of the challenges I see pretty frequently for, for health tech companies is in the implementation phase of things. Um, 
And it's one thing to win, you know, win a trial, win a, win, win a contract. It's another thing to succeed in that endeavor. Right. And, and I, I've heard lots of horror stories about, uh, great opportunities that had, had gone wrong because of failure to execute. Um, what, what are, what's important in that? I mean, clearly, and I hear you saying <laughs> you've got to be, you got to be in there and understanding what's going on on the front line, but talk about what are some of the practical steps and what are, are some of the things that you as a, as a nursing leader in a healthcare organization, what are you, what are some of the boxes that you want to see checked mm -hmm. and is going to give you the assurance that who you're interacting with knows what the heck's going on here? Yeah. Well, I think, um, for sure, there's a lot of great ideas out there. Um, but I'm going to go back to the really the the implementation science where we have to look at high reliability of the product. And I'll and I'll explain that, right? High reliability, repeatability of its use, and scalability. Those are those are those should be just everybody should make a checklist and see how are they meeting these things because it's it's okay to have a product but trust me one nursing care one unit or one inpatient or outpatient episode of care is not like the other there are no two hospitals alike even though everyone goes oh, okay i know you're all you're all special but it's true they have different <laughs> staffing models they have different floor plan layouts they have different um closet locations they, for equipment. You know, you have to think about these things. And when something is not highly reliable, not repeatable, not scalable, it creates workarounds. And I'm, I, I, I will tell you, this is my, this is my hill that I'm going to die on is that I am making workarounds never events. So if you know anything about the healthcare, uh, joint commission, um, regulatory space, we talk about never events and never events are patient safety, patient harm events where someone has died, seriously injured, injured the reportable events. And, and there's, there is a great lift and um, uh, work to prevent these sort of sentinel events. And, and it is my, <laughs> my commitment to make workarounds from technology never events because they introduce the variables that are not supporting safe, reliable, efficient care that reduces burden. If, it, it, if anybody could just replay that part and understand the underpinnings of that, I think it would be so important because to understand and to get to that piece where the implementation is repeatable and then therefore scalable that is when you have a win. That's when you have a success. And that's when you know that you've really been transformational. So innovation is great. I'll give you a punch in the arm. You've got an innovation idea. <laughs> but you know what? If it's not transformational, meaning that it actually did one of those things to improve the care environment, to allow a few minutes back to that nurse or that physician to be able to maybe hold somebody's hand who's laying in that hospital bed, who needs that comfort. If you have ever been a patient yourself, or if someone you love has ever been a patient, they're scared out of their minds. And, and yeah. just to, to save a little bit of time, 
for that clinician to be able to do that, we may see some reduced moral injury that is driving our healthcare professionals away from the bedside. Wow. That is, that's such great perspective, Kelly. I think that what I'm, you know, I've, I've thought about this a number of times recently and you just, you, you just said it and innovation in a lot of ways in our world right now is cheap. I mean, it is becoming easier and easier to create technology solutions that are quote unquote transformational. And I think that what is really going to mark successful companies is can you take that transformation into a really well-founded, implementable, scalable, uh, an applicable, you know, practically applicable world. I mean, can you transpose it? Mm-hmm. Can you take that that whiz bang cool innovation and make it work? Because making it work is it, it is the is more of the end. And it seems like so many organizations look at the technology and the innovation as the end, and making it work in the real world. And, and communicating to the market that you know what it means to make it work, that you've done the work to make it work in the real world, seems to me to be one of the, uh, one of the primary uh, pursuits right now for some of these innovative companies. Yeah, you, yeah you're, you're spot on with that, John. I mean, when I was doing the Vitals Now um, development with, a, with the company and then with HCA, um, which if anyone has seen a vital sign machine that has a barcode scanner on it, that's because the nurses at HCA demanded that. And so I would not, I was relentlessly advocating for that change in the industry so that they were mapping. So what normally happens with vital signs, and I'll tell able you to right. connect the dots. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And, and so before we weren't able to, we would have to hand write the vitals on a piece of paper and then type them into the computer, which we found was taking about six hours. But what, what happened was every time we turned a corner, the wireless wasn't working properly or the machine was caching the vitals because it couldn't hit the wireless or say, I would hold up the implementation. I would stop it. Our pilots no. And I mean, I had engineers, I'll tell you the truth. I had engineers like crying <laughs> because I kept stopping the project until they fixed the technology. Because the one time that you lose your audience and something is not reliable and there's a one piece of data missing, like a person's temperature, that's it. You're done. Nobody will use your technology. And that's that information gets spread like wildfire, like, oh, walking out of the hospital. Hey, did you see that thing? That didn't work. There's another waste of millions of dollars that got introduced to our company that should have been for my pizza party or, you know, whatever nonsense. But really, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And hearing you say that, Kelly, it, it, it underscores to me that these organizations that are working to bring this stuff to the market need to have need to have internal whistleblowers yes. that are that are willing to take those hard lines and say we don't need to go any farther until we fix x mm-hmm. we have to fix x it has to be reliable it has to be every time because we can't f- afford one of those failure events and and so and and it's going to expose us we were talking to bill russell a few episodes ago on this uh, on this podcast and he said he just underscored you cannot afford a failed implementation in today's world. You just can't, you can't. 
all these people talk to each other. <laughs> if, if you're going to go in and you have a great idea and a great piece of technology, it better be buttoned up and you better have all the answers and you better have elbow to elbow people ready to, to clean up whatever may not work. And you better recognize what you said earlier that every one of these systems is different. And you, if you built your, if you built your framework in utopia, yeah. <laughs> it better be ready to transpose into, you better have the infrastructure ready to transpose into 50 different types of implementations because that's just the beginning. Right, right. It, it would be like releasing a digital marketing campaign with spelling errors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's going to inspire confidence, right? That's exactly um, right, right? Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't afford it. And so can't afford it. That's, that's part of the, from my vantage point, the critical nature of the marketing team being very tied to product development. Um, you have to have that clear relationship. You have to have the feedback loop. And you have to ha work with your product team to clearly articulate what you're going to do to assure success. Yeah. And because that has to be part of what you put forward, right? You can't just assume that in today's world. You have to declare it and you have to help people understand because because if I'm hearing you right, Kelly, you've got your guard pretty far up. Right. You're you're kind of staring at at lots of opportunities of technology to come in and change things. But you've learned as as a person in the seat of, you know, you've learned to be skeptical. You've you've learned to, to have a high bar because nobody's got time for this stuff. And and so for organizations coming in to be able to let you know, here's what we've done to assure X. <laughs> you know, and, and, and have that flown on their masthead so that you can look at it and go, okay, if they're saying this, that must mean that they've done this diligence. I, I think that, that would be, that would be important. Talk about what are some of those things that, um, you know, we, we've talked about some of them clearly, but talk about what some of those, those entry points look like? What are some of the gates that you have up that you're wanting to make sure, uh, you know, one you said very clearly, where's the nurse on your team? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's going to be an important one. Um, past that, that pedigree, what else are you looking at? Yeah. Um, well, that's a, that's a good question. I think, um, what's the problem you're trying to solve and, and not only what's the problem that you're trying to solve, can you actually articulate that in healthcare speak so that people know that you actually understand what you're talking about? And if not, be humble enough to say, we think we have an idea here. We think we can partner with someone and we would like to partner to make this better, to reduce the burden on the caregivers that ultimately impacts the care environment. Right. And so I, I think that sometimes um, that's really important. And, and, and believe me, that will get I'm working with a physician right now who is a critical care physician. And he created a company to use accelerometers from the smartwatches to improve CPR compression rate and depth. And. I've known him for years, and the reason why I'm helping him is because he has such passion for improving patient care. And you will 
you will hands down get farther by pulling in clinicians that way than trying to, um, uh, trying to, you know, create some dazzlement that doesn't exist um, in, in the vaporwares, you know, really get into the thought flows of the clinicians by working with them. And so I'll tell you, one of the things at the Center for Medical Interoperability that we were really targeting and hoping to do was to create a innovation area where people could bring their products in and test their products out with clinicians. That was the targeted goal um, for the Transformation Learning Center area. And, and so establishing something like that is what I'm seeing a trend right now, John, over the last couple of years since COVID, frankly, is that these large companies are asking advisory councils because they can't afford a, you know, a full-time clinician or they, that just doesn't fit in their team model, but they can afford these collaborations and advisory councils. Mm-hmm. And, and I am seeing that quite a bit. Um, I'm seeing it in the virtual nursing care environments a lot right now where, you know, they, they understand that they don't have the right mix of people. So, so I think that that's an angle is, um, an angle is partnering with some of these simulation environments, um, you know, at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing, BUSM, we have a simulation area. We have people come to us with products frequently through the Wondry or through, you know, you know, just knocking on the door. And, um, and that's just, that's a potential to work with, schools of nursing to understand potential research opportunities and really get some foundational evidence behind your um, behind your solution because it shouldn't just be a great idea it should be proven but how do you get to that proven will you partner with people in the education environment is is huge if you can if you're not within an organization so talk about the difference in your experience, from from an educational and academic and uh, a for-profit and an HCA talk about how what the difference in orientation between those two and what you've ex- <laughs> <laughs> and what you've experienced there yeah i've had how, how would you yeah. how would you compare contrast wow. as, as it pertains to bringing in new have? technology <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I've been very yeah because you are schizophrenic in that regard. There's not too many yeah. people who have lived as deep in both uh, in both arenas as you have. I've been in yeah a decade of for profit, over a decade of for profit, almost a decade of not for profit, and then also the same in academic arenas. And boy, talk about huge differences in those environments. Um, academic is so interesting. Um, university arenas, they want to work on grants. They want, they're looking for grants or looking for opportunities to really show and publish on the evidence. I think that that's an amazing, an amazing opportunity for a company that actually believes in their solutions to, to be patient enough to take the time to, to build that evidence. To invest in those relationships, yeah. That's, that's really important. Um, the not-for-profit arena is, is interesting because, um, you know, they have a little more leeway uh, to create their strategic and tactical plans that are, are probably more mission-oriented. 
Um, and I think that um, there's many, many, many duplications of nonprofits looking at these sort of things. You know, um, there's just there's so much duplication. And what we're missing, quite frankly, is the policy engagement, the lack of mm-hmm. policy um, and the people actually passing bills like High Tech Act, who completely missed interoperability with meaningful use. You know, we made we made some individuals. that I won't say her name, a seven point four billion dollar net worth um, by not looking at interoperability. Um, but that's that's the option of the free market, right? And so yep. then you have for profits that will really look to internal teams and don't do a lot of publications, and it's harder to get in the door. And I remember one time we had a CIO when I first started at HCA, and she said, "Don't come to HCA with a new idea um, because we'll crush you." And <laughs> and. And that was not negative. And anytime I repeat that, and I know anybody from HCA who who hears me say this, they'll know who I'm talking about. But she used to <laughs> say that because, and I at first, when I first heard it, I was horrified. I was like, what kind of statement is that? But the idea is that that organization being in so many different states with so many different regulatory issues that impact the clinicians and therefore products have to be known. And so her point was you have to really know what you're doing in scaling and reliability and repeatability in order to be successful and not to be crushed and burned out, which is why they created the venture capital arm to actually invest in the companies that were chosen by, uh, for solutions so that they could put, you know, um, like um, some resources put, behind yeah, resources to help the enterprise, enterprise readiness. Yeah, to do all of that work. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, very, very different paradigms, very different, but lots of opportunities, so much opportunities in all three areas. And again, really, really fortunate. I think I go back to, and I'll just say it again, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Yep. That's great perspective. What do you, um, as you look at the horizon right now and look at the, at, at the landscape of the frontline clinician, when you look at technology and marrying it between, you know, technology and innovation with what's going on in the front line, what are some of the innovations that you're most excited about? What are some of the, thing, the things that you see as must-haves, must-develop, must-work must to meaningful implementation here in this, uh, in the near term? Yeah. Um, really great question. Again, we could probably go on for a long time, but I'd like to flip that and say, could we actually look at the opportunities for person centered longitudinal coordination of care? Meaning could we get out of the four walls of the hospital and start looking at someone's experience in their health journey through rehab, through um, homelessness, through um, continuum of care into long-term care or aging facilities. That is like a a silent shadow market that people have not even considered until they're the person in that episode of care or their parent or someone. And so I think that the opportunity really that's on the horizon and where I'm advising my students to go is not necessarily to be chasing hype, but 
to be looking at where are the failure points in healthcare. And those failure points are in facilitating continuum of care, care coordination. My husband is a disabled veteran, and I look at the care that he receives and and quite frankly, how much better the VA has gotten at delivering care by looking at the person, the veteran, as opposed to when you present with your episode of care. And, and that's a longitudinal thing, right? That's a holistic approach. And, and again, I think these whiz-bang solutions are amazing. They're sexy. They're, they're fun. They're ex- that's why people like doing this sort of work because it's fun. But the real work is in the grind of what meaningful impact do you have and what solution, you know, what are you trying to solve? So, so long-term care, I think, is something in the continuum of care that, that we have failed at by the lack of interoperability around the person as a nation. And I think that mm-hmm. because we have to repeat so many lab tests and, and we, when you go into a doctor's office or into the hospital, you're unknown. Nobody knows who you are. If you came from another state, you're unknown. So how can we create that, that, that person-centered? And, you know, there's countries that have done this, Estonia, the East Citizen. Um, you know, I've been working with a group of nurse informaticians on the RN Digital Citizen um, so that we can actually be respect portability of their competencies and looking at how that impacts care um, so that you're a known caregiver, uh, who's giving the best outcomes and so forth. So, so lots of opportunities if you look at the, in, the, the landscape and, and you look at not just a maybe a one-off solution because a one-off solution will break something else. Absolutely. What is the, like, if you're looking at some of the, we'll talk about stateside success stories or things that you're seeing right now that are, are forming, that are promising in that arena, what, have, what are you seeing happen that, that you're excited about? Um, I do think that using some, it, well, what am I excited about seeing right now? Right now, I think that we've gotten over the implementation phase and we've moved into the optimization universe and that's where we need to be. And what I mean by that is where could we use our voice to text? Where can we use our voice um, to documentation? Where can we use some of these um, prompt engineering or generative um, artificial intelligence like model languaging to help with documentation burden? that's actually compliant, that helps with the whole cycle of, um, of uh, provider satisfaction and reducing burden. So I think that, I think that the, the promise is there. We need a lot of work in this space, um, but I think that, um, that that's probably the most interesting to me right now is having these, um, and I don't want to use the hype word AI because you know, I just spoke at the National Academy of Medicine on this. And I said, I'm not, they asked me to come and speak on artificial intelligence. And I said, no, I don't thank you anyway. I don't want to, but I will speak about (laughs) interoperability and the lack thereof that is driving so many failures in our system because the interoperability is what we're missing. And so, you know, I I think if I had my wish list, I would see something like um, C4MI um, being refunded by government. So Which that, is Center for Medical Interoperability. Mm-hmm, yeah, that has been defunded due to COVID, um, you know, hospital prioritizations. 
And, yep. and I think that without a centralized lab, um, you know, we're, we're just going to keep repeating, rinse and repeat everything that we're doing. And, uh, and I think that that's an opportunity and I would, I, I just keep getting so many requests around this topic that I believe that that is an opportunity that should be paid attention to. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you, Kelly. I think that AI has sort of stolen center stage. And when we are looking at what are the critical, like if we're looking at the, the nexus of dysfunction right now, it has, all, you know, it really is about the failure of systems to work together towards creating a patient centered experience, you know, person it, it has right. to, it's about yeah, person centered. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and the ability to create that is, is going to continue to be increasingly important, especially as we start confronting the, the population aging mm -hmm. curve mm -hmm. in greater, uh, and greater acuity because that's going to only it, it's going to be the aging our aging population is going to be the next covid and as far as healthcare, as far as what that's going to require of the system and our ability to get around that and try and uh, effectively address and and put the systems in place that will afford us the opportunity to handle what's what is coming is going to be is going to be really important what are you seeing as needing to change in reference to uh, or in reference to that curve? Like what are some of the, the pain points that, I mean, interoperability, pretty, pretty clear person-centered focus on how we are handling information. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing needing to change soon that will help our preparedness for, for some of that curve as it gets more acute? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm trying to, you know, come up with the great idea, <laughs> but I, I see that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of deteriorating. I think that we would be um, irresponsible to not be paying attention to the trends of losing healthcare providers from mm -hmm. the profession. And, um, you know, this like you say, it's, it's like a COVID epidemic. This is, this is very, very real when we have the experience level of nurses at the bedside being less than three years and they're leaving. I remember when my mom was um, in the hospital, my niece, who is a registered nurse, um, who left the profession after three years, she was um, talking with the ICU nurse over my mom and he said, well, I've been here for four years. And she, and she said, wow, you've been at the hospital. You have so much experience. You've been there for so long. And I, I just remember being horrified because I yeah. thought that's the experience level. Because what people don't realize is it's the caregivers who are standing between patient harm, right? And, and, their, and their ability to improve in wellness. And, um, and I just, John, I remember being horrified by that. And I think that we should pay attention to, um, looking into things like this mind lab that I'm pushing with, uh, meditation, immersive, um, experiences that will help with resilience and coping. And I think we need to invest in, in the care teams. And, and I would ask that people stop calling them heroes. That's actually kind of insulting because they're not heroes. They, 
they experience moral injury, they're humans, they, they are going to work to take care of humans, which is what they devoted their careers to. And, and so I, I know myself and many others that that is not looked at as a positive when they get a sign in the, in the lawn out front of their, you know, uh, establishment calling them heroes. They're looking at, Hey, let's look at the staffing models. Let's look at where the failure points are, where can technology come in and actually improve care? Where can some of these virtual models actually infuse in, in take, um, a quality perspective or a safety perspective. Um, you know, one time I was talking with some people and and they had said, well, what if we created this, this net of a safety around a patient's bed that maybe if you came into that zone and you hadn't washed your hands or you brought the wrong blood product or the wrong medication, that that it just signaled you and you and you could back out of that zone. Like those sort of things would be helpful. Um, you know, there there has to be a better way to improve the safety and care delivery by reducing burden. Um, much like we have, much like we know in today's world, um, you know, we do go, I'll make one more point, and I've said this a number of times. We, we look at a typical critical care unit and we see IV poles and we see ventilators and we see ECMO machines or kidney machines or whatever it is, you know, about 12, 13 different devices around this patient. What people don't realize is that the nurses are logging into each one of those and then hand entering them yep. into the electronic device. So that would be just like you having 10, 12, 13 different phones that you would, anytime you would get one an app, your phone would have an app, right? And so you would want to, you would have to log into 13 different phones in order to coordinate your life. And so I think that, again, there are so many glaring, obvious issues that we have in care coordination and the continuum of care that introducing some of these solutions really have to be thoughtful. And I would say, again, you know, work with the clinicians see where are the, what I used to do is I used to go to the risk management profile and see where were we having patient harms and, and where could we then apply technology to improve it. So I used to yeah. do that, you know, in, in several organizations that I was in, because those actually told the stories of where the opportunities were. Well, we are nearing the end of our time here and I'm sitting here th with about 50 other questions, <laughs> maybe not 50, but several. And so it just begs a begs a follow-up here. I, I think that your emphasis and the the critical understanding of what are the real failure points and, and how are we going to create uh, solutions that are mitigating that effectively and avoiding, you know, and certainly avoiding it and ideally ridding us of it, I think is, uh, is really a great underscore and um, something to be aware of. I think that, you know, what you, what you brought forward about the critical nature of having a very empathetic perspective from the clinician's point of view, as you are, are, are bringing solutions forward and not, <laughs> and being ready for the variation mm -hmm. of the, that need that exists in real world deployments. Um, that's, that's so, so important and and an area that a lot of especially early stage companies just don't have a and, and you do hear it you hear it at, you know every, if you've implemented in one healthcare facility you've implemented in one healthcare facility and people kind of laugh that off well no it's real and and the understanding of that and what it means to be enterprise ready 
doesn't just mean you've got enough server space to handle the load. <laughs> it means you've got a frame, you've got a, you've got a team that is ready to customize, to, to, uh, to adapt and to uh, afford the opportunities and sit with an organization until it is working flawlessly. Right. Um, that is, that is what needs to happen. And, uh, and just going into that eyes open is super important. So much great perspective here, Kelly, and uh, a great affirmation to me of why we got you on our advisory board, because there's a lot that our, uh, that our folks are, have the opportunity to learn from, from you. Thank you for taking some time with us today. Uh, we, there will be there will be more opportunities for conversation. Great. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen back to this and uh, say, okay, what's one point we could spend an hour talking about? Because there's several of them. Um, but certainly, uh, you you can see uh, Kelly's expertise here and her passion. And uh, Kelly, thank you for thank you for the investment you're making. And you know, when I when I hear that it's going past what nurses are doing on the floor, but for really caring for their mental well-being and who they are as people, um, you know, your, your investment in focus on that focus and, and realizing what it means for people to get perspective and hold perspective and, and stay centered in what is a very demanding, uh, in many cases, heart wrenching, uh, profession is, is uh, super important and grateful for your investment on that front too. And I want to see some of that pottery. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks for joining us today. Real honor. And thank you. And, you know, don't give up. Don't, you know, don't take this as a wet blanket. Look at it as these are, um, you know, key points to avoid the failures and really, really embrace and engage with your clinicians to help you be highly reliable, um, having a repeatable and scalable solution, because I'm sure your great ideas, maybe with just a little tweaking or something could be really phenomenal and have a, an extraordinary impact. So thanks for letting me um, share some of my thoughts with your audience. I, I do appreciate it. I'm very honored. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs>